The Spirit witnesses to the atoning work of Jesus in his priestly office. The transcendent efficacy of the sacrifice arose from the infinite dignity of the priest. The priests under the law could impart no personal efficacy or glory to their sacrificial offerings. Their sacrifices were only available for the atonement of transgression as they were offered up in obedience to the command of God. But the sacrifice which Christ presented derived all its efficacy and glory from his person. It is this doctrine that attaches such importance to the death of Jesus and that throws such surpassing glory around his obedience. The blood of the Lord Jesus cleanses us from all sin because it is the blood of the God-man. The righteousness of the Lord Jesus justifies us from all things because it is the righteousness of God. From this arises the costliness of the sacrifice which Jesus presented to God. It was also an entire sacrifice. It was himself he offered. Walk in love as Christ also hath loved us and hath given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. Ephesians 5, 2. It was himself he offered up. More he could not give, less would not have sufficed. He gave himself all that he possessed in heaven and all that belonged to him on earth he gave in behalf of his people. His life of obedience, his death of suffering, he gave as an offering and a sacrifice to God. It was an entire surrender. It was a voluntary offering. He gave himself. It was not by compulsion or by constraint that he surrendered himself into the hands of divine justice. He did not go as a reluctant victim to the altar. They did not drag him to the cross. He went voluntarily. It is true that there existed a solemn necessity that Jesus should die in behalf of his people. It grew out of his covenant engagement with the Father. Into that engagement he voluntarily entered. His own ineffable love constrained him. But after the compact had been made, the covenant of redemption ratified, and the bond given to justice, there was a necessity resting upon Jesus, compelling him to finish the work. His word, his honor, his truth, his glory, all were pledged to the entire fulfillment of his suretyship. He had freely given himself into the power of justice. He was, therefore, on his taking upon him the form of a servant, under obligations to satisfy all its claims. He was legally bound to obey all its commands. And yet it was a voluntary surrender of himself as a sacrifice for his people. It was a willing offering. If there was a necessity, and we have shown that there was, it grew out of his own voluntary love to his church. It was, so to speak, a voluntary necessity. See how this blessed view of the death of Jesus is sustained by the divine word. He was oppressed, Isaiah 53, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. His own declaration confirms the truth. Therefore, John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18, Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. 
nor was it a voluntariness founded on ignorance. He well knew what the covenant of redemption involved and what stern justice demanded. The entire scene of his humiliation was before him in all its dark and somber hues. The manger, the bloodthirsty king, the scorn and reproach of his countrymen, the unbelief of his own kinsmen, the mental agony of Gethsemane, the bloody sweat, the bitter cup, the waywardness of his disciples, the betrayal of one, the denial of another, the forsaking of all, the mock trial, the purple robe, the crown of thorns, the infuriated cry, away with him, away with him, crucify him, crucify him. The heavy cross, the painful crucifixion, the cruel taunts, the vinegar and the gall, the hidings of his father's countenance, the concentrated horrors of the curse, the last cry of anguish, the bowing of the head, the giving up the ghost, all, all was before the omniscient mind of the Son of God with a vividness equal to its reality when he exclaimed, Save him from going down to the pit, I have found a ransom. And yet he willingly rushed to the rescue of ruined man. He voluntarily, though he knew the price of pardon was his blood, gave himself up thus to the bitter, bitter agony. And did he regret that he had undertaken the work? Never. It is said that it repented God that he had made man, but in no instance is it recorded that it repented Jesus that he had redeemed man. Not an action, not a word, not a look betrayed an emotion like this. Every step he took from Bethlehem to Calvary did but unfold the willingness of Jesus to die. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how am I straightened till it be accomplished? Oh, how amazing was the love of Jesus. This, this was the secret why he loved not his own life unto the death. He loved sinners too well. He loved us better than himself. With all our sinfulness, guilt, wretchedness, and poverty, he yet loved us so much as to give himself an offering and sacrifice unto God for us. Here was the springhead whence flowed these streams of mercy. This was the gushing fountain that was opened when he died. And when they taunted him and said, If thou be the king of the Jews, save thyself. Oh, what a reply did his silence give. I came not to save myself, but my people. I hang here not for my own sins, but for theirs. I could save myself, but I came to give my life a ransom for many. They thought the nails alone kept him to the cross. He knew it was his own love that fastened him there. Behold, the strength of Emmanuel's love. Come, fall prostrate, adore and worship him. Oh, what love was his! Oh, the depth! Do not be content merely to stand upon the shore of this sea. Enter into it. Drink deeply from it. It is for you, if you are truly feeling your nothingness, your poverty, and your vileness. This sea, this ocean is for you. 
It is not for angels. It is for men. It is not for the righteous, but for sinners. Then drink to the full from the love of Jesus. Do not be satisfied with small supplies. Take a large vessel to the fountain. The larger the demand, the larger the supply. The more needy, the more welcome. The more vile, the more fit to come. Then plunge into this ocean and count all things else but loss for Jesus. And sing as you do so the cross. The cross, oh, that's my gain, because on that the Lamb was slain. T'was there my Lord was crucified. T'was there my Savior for me died. What wondrous cause could move thy heart to take on thee my curse and smart, well knowing that my soul would be so cold, so negligent to thee. The cause was love. I sink with the sacred Jesus' name that thou shouldst bleed and slaughtered be because, because thou lovest me. We have yet to show in what way the Spirit of God witnesses to the atoning work of Jesus. He does so by leading the guilty, condemned, and broken-hearted sinner to rest on Jesus alone for salvation. In this way, he testifies of Christ. He first convinces the soul of sin, bringing the holy law of God with a condemning, slaying power into the conscience. Then, having wounded and laid low, he leads the soul to Jesus as an all-sufficient Savior. He opens the understanding to comprehend and the heart to welcome his own recorded testimonies of that all-sufficiency and the readiness of the Lord Jesus Christ to save the vilest of the vile. He leads to the fountain of Emmanuel's precious blood, plunges the guilty sinner beneath its cleansing stream, and then raises him to the newness of life, washed, sanctified, justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. And this is the testimony. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. John 3:14 through 16 John 6:37. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. Mark 16:16. 16, 16, he that believeth shall be saved. Hebrews 7:25. Wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him. What a witness is this to the power and readiness of Christ to save. And this is the testimony of the Holy Ghost to the blessed Son of God. But he does more than this. He brings home the record with power to the soul. He writes the testimony on the heart. He converts the believing soul itself into a witness that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And what a gospel is this for a poor sinner. There is not, says an old divine, an ill word in it against a poor sinner stripped of his self-righteousness. It speaks of pardon, of acceptance, of peace, of full redemption here and unspeakable glory hereafter. It proclaims a Savior to the lost, a Redeemer to the captive, a surety to the insolvent, a physician to the sick, a friend to the needy, an advocate to the criminal, all that a self-ruined, sin-cursed, law-condemned, justice-threatened, broken-hearted sinner wants, this glorious gospel of the blessed God provides. 
It reveals to the self-ruined sinner one in whom is his help. Hosea 13.9 To the sin-accused, one who can take away all sin. 1 John 1.7 To the law-condemned, one who saves from all condemnation. Romans 8.1 To the justice-threatened, one who is a hiding place from the wind and a covert from the tempest. Isaiah 32.2 To the broken-hearted, one who bindeth up and healeth. Isaiah 61.1 That one is... Jesus, O name ever dear, ever sweet, ever precious, ever fragrant, ever healing to the poor in spirit, the blessed spirit witnesses to the all-sufficiency of Christ for all the needs of his people. He testified that it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. He takes of the things of Christ and shows them to the believer. Perhaps this is his greatest witness to a child of God in reference to Jesus, and why? Because the highest act by which a believing soul glorifies Christ is a life of daily faith upon him. There is a vast difference between an acknowledgment of Christ in the judgment, a bowing of the knee to him outwardly, and a real, experimental, daily living upon him. The very essence of experimental religion is living upon Christ daily as a poor, empty sinner. We live in a day of easy and splendid profession, a day in which many can speak well of Christ and profess and call themselves Christians. But all is not gold. There is much tinsel, much that is only dross, much that is counterfeit. And while many a man has been applauded for his money, admired for his philanthropy, worshipped for his talent, and followed for his eloquence... God has said, I see no lowliness of spirit, no brokenness of heart, no humbling views of self. I hear no voice of prayer, no acknowledgment of my power. I behold no crowning of my son, no honoring of me with the glory. And while many a man has been as the scum and the off-scouring of all things, despised for his feeble gifts, his poor talents, his humble sphere looked down upon by the great and wise and the haughty, the high and lofty one who inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy, has said, I see a broken heart, I see a lowly mind, I see the work of my spirit, I see the image of my Son. I dwell with him that is of a humble and contrite spirit. Oh, yes, a poor believer going to Jesus in all his emptiness and weakness, going to him, leaning on his blood and righteousness, going to him in the face of all opposition, pleading his worth and worthiness, going with all his sins, with all his infirmities, with all his backslidings, with all his needs. That one has more real glory in it than all the glory of all worlds collected in one blazing focus. What a witness, then, is this which the Spirit, the eternal Spirit, bears to Jesus. He assures the believer that all he can possibly want is treasured up in Christ, that he has no cross, but Christ can bear it, no sorrow, but Christ can alleviate it, no corruption, but Christ can subdue it, no guilt, but Christ can remove it, no sin, but Christ can pardon it, no want, but Christ can supply it. Lift up your heads, you who are poor, needy and disconsolate, lift up your heads and rejoice that Christ is all to you, all you need in this veil of tears, all you need in the deepest sorrow, all you need under the heaviest affliction, 
all you need in sickness, all you will need in the hour of death and in the day of judgment. Indeed, Christ is in all too. He is in all your salvation. He is in all your mercies. He is in all your trials. He is in all your consolations and in all your afflictions. What more can you want? What more can you desire? A Father who loves you as the apple of His eye. A full Savior to whom go moment by moment. A blessed indwelling, sanctifying, comforting Spirit to reveal all to you and to give you Himself as the earnest of your inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of His glory. Happy is that people that is in such a case. Yea, happy is that people whose God is the Lord. Another and an important witness which the eternal spirit bears for Christ is when he impresses upon the believer the image of Christ. It is the peculiar work of the Holy Ghost to glorify Christ, and this he does in various blessed ways, but perhaps in none more strikingly than in drawing out the likeness of Christ upon the soul. He glorifies Christ in the believer. He witnesses to the power of the grace of Christ in its influence upon the principles, the temper, the daily walk, and the whole life of a man of God. The image of Christ. What is it? In one word, it is holiness. Jesus was the holiness of the law embodied. He was a living comment on the majesty and purity of the divine law. The life he lived, the doctrines he proclaimed, the precepts he enjoined, the announcements he made, the revelations he disclosed, all, all were the very inspiration of holiness. Holiness was the vital air he breathed. Although in a world of impurity, all of whose influences were hostile to a life of holiness, yet he moved amid the mass of corruption, not only untouched and untainted, but reflecting so vividly the luster of his own purity as to compel the forms of evil that everywhere flitted athwart his path, either to acknowledge his holiness and submit to his authority, or to shrink away in their native darkness. We know thee who thou art, the Holy One of God. And this is the image the Holy Spirit seems to draw, though it be but an outline of the lineaments upon the believing soul. What a testimony he bears for Christ when he causes the image of Jesus to be reflected from every faculty of the soul, to beam in every glance of the eye, to speak in every word of the tongue, and to invest with its beauty every action of the life. Oh, that every child of God might more deeply and solemnly feel that he is to be a witness for Jesus, a witness for a cross-bearing Savior, a witness to the spotless purity of his life, the lowliness of his mind, his deep humility, self-denial, self-annihilation, consuming zeal for God's glory, and yearning compassion for the salvation of souls a sanctifying tendency of his truth, the holiness of his commands, the purifying influence of his precepts, the elevating power of his example. It may not be that all these divine characteristics center in one human person, or that all these lovely features are reflected in a single character. All believers are not alike, eminent for the same peculiar and exalted graces of the Spirit. 
It was not so in the early and palmy days of the gospel when Jesus himself was known in the flesh and the Holy Ghost descended in an extraordinary degree of sanctifying influence upon the church. It would therefore be unwise to expect it now. And yet we have a right to look for one or more of the moral features of our dear Lord's character in his people. Some resemblance to his image, something that marks the man of God, some lowliness of mind, gentleness of temper, humility of deportment, charity, patience in the endurance of affliction, meekness in the suffering of persecution, forgiveness of injuries, returning good for evil, blessing for cursing, in a word, some portion of the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. If one or more of these are not in us and abound so that they make us that we shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ and in a resemblance to his likeness, we have great reason to doubt whether we have ever known the grace of God in truth. That is indeed a melancholy profession in which can be traced nothing that identifies the man with Jesus Nothing in his principles, his motives, nothing in his tone of mind, nothing in his spirit, his very appearance that reminds one of Christ, that draws the heart to him, that makes the name of Emmanuel fragrant, and that lifts the soul in ardent desires to be like him too. This is the influence which a believer exerts who bears about with him the resemblance to his Lord and Master. A holy man is a blessing wherever he may go. He is a savor of Christ in every place. It is a mercy to be brought in contact with him. We extract a blessing from him. We get, it may be, a drop of oil from the vessel of a holy man, or a single ray from his heart. And although it is more blessed to possess the solar beam, to ascend to the fountain of light... Yet a reflected warmth in this wintry world is too valuable and blessed to be lightly esteemed. Would that the saints of God who may have drawn largely upon the fullness of Christ, who have been made to possess some peculiar manifestations of his loving kindness, some special revivings of his spirit, were more ready to pass on the same blessings to others. A believer is not his own nor is he to live to himself, believer. You are not your own. You are not to live to yourself. And when the Lord imparts a gift or a grace to any one member, it is for the edification and comfort of the whole body. Come and hear all ye that fear God, and I will declare what he hath done for my soul. An invitation that has often refreshed the spirit, revived the heart, kindled the love, and strengthened the things that remained that were ready to die in the saints of God. The history of American revivals presents a striking and beautiful illustration of this fact. The author can testify from personal observation and experience that some of the most gracious and remarkable outpourings of the Spirit with which that honored land, America, has been favored, have resulted from the simple testimony to a special reviving of the Lord's work in his own soul, born by some individual member of the church moving, it may be, in a humble and limited sphere of influence. God has honored his testimony. His narrative has awakened interest. His zeal has rebuked indolence. His fervor has excited to prayer. His tears and pleadings have moved to exertion, and thus an impulse has been created which has gone on strengthening and expanding until it has embraced and blessed an entire community. 
It was but as a small pebble cast into the stagnant water, yet the circle included a family. It widened until it embraced a church, and still it grew wider until an entire village or town felt the power of the Spirit, and every house became vocal with thanksgiving and the voice of melody. Thus is the Spirit a witness for Christ in His people by conforming them to His image. It would only be a presenting a limited view of the Spirit's work as a witness if we confined His work in this character to the testimony He bears for Christ. He is not only a witness for Christ, but He witnesses to the saints of God. This is clear from His own sacred word. He that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in Himself. 1 John 5.10 Hereby know we that we dwell in Him and He in us, because he hath given us of his Spirit, 1 John 4.13, who hath also sealed us and given the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts, 2 Corinthians 1.22. But the most direct allusion to this truth is this, quote, The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, Romans 8.16. Let us present a brief outline of this subject. Beyond this, we cannot venture. The doctrine of an assured belief of the pardon of sin, of acceptance in Christ, and of adoption into the family of God has been and still is regarded by many as an attainment never to be expected in this present life. And when it is expressed, it is viewed with a suspicion unfavorable to the character of the work. But this is contrary to the divine word and to the actual experience of millions who have lived and died in the full assurance of hope. The doctrine of assurance is a doctrine of undoubted revelation, implied and expressed, that it is enforced as a state of mind essential to the salvation of the believer, we cannot admit, but that it is insisted upon as essential to his comfortable and holy walk, and as greatly involving the glory of God, we must strenuously maintain. Otherwise, why do we have these marked references to the doctrine? In Colossians 2, 1 and 2, Paul expresses great conflict for the saints, that their hearts might be comforted, being knit together in love, and unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding. In the epistle to the Hebrews, chapter 6, verse 11, that writer says, We desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end. Chapter 10, verse 22, the writer exhorts them, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. And to crown all, the apostle Peter thus earnestly exhorts his readers, Wherefore the rather, brethren, 2 Peter 1.10, Give diligence to make your calling and election sure. No further proof from the Bible is required to authenticate this doctrine. It is written as with a sunbeam that the Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Let us present a brief, a brief explanation of these words. Three important things are involved in them. First, the witness. Second, that with which he witnesses. And lastly, the great truth to which he witnesses. First, the Spirit itself beareth witness. The great business of making known to a poor sinner his acquittal in the high court of heaven and his adoption into the king's family is entrusted to no inferior agent. No angel is commissioned to bear the tidings. No mortal man may disclose the secret. None but God, the Holy Ghost himself, the Spirit itself. He that rests short of this testimony wrongs his own soul 
See that you rely on no witness to your calling and election but this. Human testimony is feeble here. Your preacher, your minister, your friend, schooled as they may be in the evidences of experimental godliness, cannot assure your spirit that you are born of God. God, the eternal spirit alone, can do this. He alone is competent. He alone, the Spirit of God, alone can fathom the deep things of God. He alone can rightly discern between his own work and its counterfeit, between grace and nature. He alone can make known the secret of the Lord to them that fear him. All other testimony to your sonship is uncertain and may fearfully and fatally deceive you. It is the Spirit that beareth witness, because the Spirit is truth. Again and yet again would we solemnly repeat it, take nothing for granted touching your personal interest in Christ. Do not rest satisfied with the testimony of your own spirit or with that of the holiest saint on earth. Seek nothing short of the Holy Spirit himself. This alone will do for a dying hour. The second thing to be observed in the declaration is that with which he witnesses, the Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit. It is a personal testimony, not born to others, but to ourselves, with our spirit. The adoption of the believer into the family of God is so great a privilege, involving blessings so immense for being so sinful, and in all respects unworthy, that if their Heavenly Father did not assure them by his own immediate testimony of its truth, no other witness would suffice to remove their doubts, quiet their fears, and satisfy them as to their real sonship. The eternal Spirit of God descends and enters into hearts as a witness to adoption. He first renews our spirit, applies the atoning blood to the conscience, works faith in the heart, enlightens the understanding, and thus prepares the believing soul for the revelation and assurance of this great and glorious truth, his adoption into the family of God. As it is with our spirit, the Holy Ghost witnesses, it is necessary that in order to perfect agreement and harmony, he who has the witness within himself should first be a repenting and believing sinner. He who says that he has this witness, but who still remains dead in sins, a stranger to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, to the renewings of the Holy Ghost in a word who is not born of God, is wrapping himself up in an awful deception. The witness we plead for is the holy testimony in concurrence with a holy gospel by a holy spirit to a holy man and concerning a holy truth. There can be no discrepancy, no want of harmony between the witness of the Spirit and the Word of God. He witnesses according to and in agreement with the truth. Vague and fanciful impressions, visions and voices received and rested upon as evidences of salvation are fearful delusions. Nothing is to be viewed as an evidence of our divine sonship which does not square and harmonize with the revealed word of God. We must have a thus saith the Lord for every step we take in believing that we are the children of God. Let it be remembered, then, 
that the Spirit bears his testimony to believers. His first step is to work repentance and faith in the heart. Then follows the sealing and witnessing operation, in whom also after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. The last aspect is the great truth to which he testifies, namely, that we are the children of God. The Spirit is emphatically spoken of as a spirit of adoption. For ye have not received the spirit of, adopt, of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father, Romans 8.15. And again, And because ye are sons, God hath sent forth the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father, Galatians 4.6. Now it is the peculiar office of the Spirit to witness to the adoption of the believer. Look at the blessed fact to which he testifies. Not that we are the enemies, the aliens, the strangers, the slaves, but that we are children, the children of God, high and holy privilege, the children of God, chosen from all eternity, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. All their iniquities laid on Jesus, their blessed surety, justified by the Lord our righteousness, called by the effectual operation of the eternal Spirit, inhabited, sanctified, and sealed by God the Holy Ghost. O oh, exalted state, O oh, holy privilege, O oh, happy people! Pressing on it may be, through strong corruptions, deep trials, clinging infirmities, fiery temptations, sore discouragements, dark providences, and often the hidings of a father's countenance, and yet the children of God, now and soon to be glorified hereafter. Reader, in closing, let me ask you, have you the witness of the Spirit? Has He convinced you of sin by the law? Has he made you acquainted with your guilt and pollution? Is it written upon your conscience as solemnly and as undoubtedly as it is written in the Bible that you are guilty and condemned, lost and undone, and must finally and awfully perish without Christ? Have you sought a secret place for humiliation and confession and supplication before God, the eternal and holy God, the sovereign of all worlds, the judge of the quick and the dead, at whose tribunal you must soon stand? Ah, solemn, searching questions. You may evade them, you may frame some vain excuse, you may wait for a more convenient season, you may even seek to stifle the seriousness and the thoughtfulness which these questions have occasioned by another and a deeper plunge into the world. But they will follow you there, and will be heard amid the din of business and the loud laugh of pleasure. They will follow you to your dying bed, and they will be heard there amid the gloom and the silence and the terror of that hour. They will follow you up to the judgment seat, and will be heard there amid the gatherings and the tremendous disclosures of that scene. They will follow you down to the abode of the lost, and will be heard there amid the weeping and the wailing and the gnashing of teeth. Sinner! 
from an enlightened but guilty and accusing conscience you can never escape. It will be the worm that never dies. From the wrath of God you can then find no shelter. It will be the fire that never shall be quenched. Again we earnestly inquire, Have you the witness of the Spirit? Has He testified to you of Jesus, of His renewing grace, pardoning love, sin-cleansing blood, justifying righteousness and full redemption? Have you joy and peace in believing? To the child of God, we would say, covet earnestly the witness of the Spirit. Do not be cast down nor cherish rash and hasty conclusions as to your adoption. If you do not possess it so fully and clearly as others, the holiest believer may walk for many days without the sun. Read the record of the experiences of David and of Job and of Jeremiah and the last moments of our dear and adorable Emmanuel. And mark what shadows at times fell upon their souls how a sense of comfort failed them, how joys fled and they mourned an absent God. But were they the less dear to the heart of Jehovah? Were they the less his beloved children because they were thus tried? No, God forbid. Still we plead for the full enjoyment of the witness of the Spirit. It is the high privilege of the children of God. Let no one rob you of it. Look up to God humbly and unceasingly cry, Abba. Father. Chapter 8. The Spirit to the Author of Prayer. The Believer Drawing Near to God. Romans 8, 26. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. For we know not what we should pray for, as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. That God should have erected in this lower world a throne of grace, a mercy seat around which may gather in clustering and welcome multitudes the helpless, the burdened, the friendless, the vile, the guilty, the deeply necessitous, that no poor comer be his poverty never so great, his burden never so heavy, or his case never so desperate, should meet with a refusal of a hearing or a welcome, does greatly develop and magnify the riches of God's grace." his wisdom and his love to sinners. What a God our God must be, thus to have appointed a meeting place, an audience for those upon whom all other doors are closed. More wonderful still it is that he should have appointed Jesus, the door of approach to that throne, should have given his only begotten and well-beloved Son to be the new and living way of access, thus removing all obstruction in the way of the soul's coming, both on the part of himself and on the part of the sinner, that the door should be a crucified Savior, the wounds of the Son of God, that through blood and that blood, the blood of the incarnate deity, the guilty should approach. Wonder, O heavens, and be astonished, O earth, shall we say even more than this? For there is yet a lower depth in this love and condescension of God, His sending of His Spirit into the heart, the author of prayer, putting the petition into words, breathing in the soul, implanting the desire, convincing of the existing necessity, unfolding the character of God, the Spirit working faith in the heart and drawing it up to God through Jesus, all of which seems the very perfection of His wisdom benevolence and grace 
It must be acknowledged by the spiritual mind that all true prayer is of the leading of the Spirit, that He is the author of all real approach of the soul to God, and yet how perpetually we need to be reminded of this. He is the author of all real approach of the soul to God. Prayer is one of the most spiritual employments that can possibly engage the mind. It is that holy act of the soul which brings it immediately in contact with a holy God. Prayer has more directly to do with the high and lofty one than any other exercise. It is that state of mind, too, that most deeply acknowledges its dependence on God. Prayer is the expression of want, the desire of need, the acknowledgement of poverty, the language of dependence, the breathing of a soul that has nothing in itself but hangs on God for all at once. Prayer must therefore be a highly spiritual and holy exercise. But this will appear still more so if we consider that true prayer is the breathing of the life of God in the soul of man. True prayer is the breathing of the life of God in the soul of man. Prayer is the spirit dwelling and breathing in man. It is the new nature pouring out its vital principle, and that into the ear of the God whence it came. It is the cry of the feeble child turning to the father it loves, and in all its conscious weakness, dependence, and need, pouring out the yearnings of its full heart into the bosom where dwells nothing but love. In a word, it is God and the creature meeting and blending in one act of blessed, holy, and eternal fellowship. And now that on a subject so spiritual and involving so deeply the happiness and the holiness of a child of God, the believer should at times be greatly and seriously harassed and tempted as much by the weakness of his flesh as by the influence of Satan is not to be wondered at. We desire, therefore, before going into the consideration of the Spirit's operation in this holy exercise, to glance at some of those peculiar infirmities which so frequently and so painfully lessen the habit of prayer, and weaken the power of it, and keep back the answer of prayer. May the Spirit now teach us. There is a state of mind often enfeebling to the exercise of prayer, arising from the difficulty of forming proper views of the spiritual nature of the divine object of prayer. Through the weakness of our nature, the spirituality of God has been felt by some to be a stumbling block in the approach of the soul. God is a spirit, is the solemn announcement that meets them at the very threshold, and so completely overawes and abashes the mind as to congeal every current of thought and of feeling, and well nigh to crush the soul with its inconceivability. God is a spirit. Nor is this surprising. Prayer is the approach of finity to infinity, and although it is the communing of spirit, small s, with spirit, capital S, yet it is the finite communing infinite, and that through the organs of sense. Is it any marvel, then, that at periods a believer should be baffled in his endeavor to form some just conception of the divine existence, some faint idea of the nature of that God to whom his soul addresses itself, 
and failing in the attempt should turn away in sadness, sorrow, and despair? The remedy for this state of mind, we believe, is at hand. It is simple and scriptural. To enlarge our thoughts with any adequate idea of the nature and the appearance of the divine spirit is an utter impossibility. He that attempts it and thinks he has succeeded lives in the region of fancy and opposes himself to the revelation of God himself, which expressly declares no man hath seen God at any time. John 1.18 Who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, whom no man hath seen nor can see. 1 Timothy 6.16 this being then admitted as it must be by all reflective minds, the question arises, how am I to view God? What idea am I to form of his existence in approaching him in prayer? In reply, two things are necessary in getting proper thoughts of God as the object of prayer. First, that the mind should resign all its attempts to comprehend the mode of the divine existence and should concentrate all its powers upon the contemplation of the character of the divine existence. In what relation God stands to the creature, not in what way he exists in himself, is the point with which we have to do in approaching him. Let the mind be wrapped in devout contemplations of God's holiness, benevolence, love, truth, wisdom, justice, and there will be no room for vain and fruitless imaginations respecting the fathomless and inconceivable mode of his existence. The second thing necessary is that the mind should view God in Christ. If your mind is baffled and perplexed, as it surely will be in its attempts to unravel the spiritual nature of God, let it seek a resting place in the incarnate mystery. This was one part of the gracious design of God in assuming human nature. It was to bring, so to speak, the infinite in a direct angle with the finite, so that the two lines should not merely run parallel, but that the two extremes of being should meet. It was to embody his essential and surpassing glories in such a way as to present an object which man could contemplate without fear, worship without distraction, and look upon and not die. The Lord Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. Jesus, the brightness of his glory, the express image of his person. He that hath seen me, saith the Lord Jesus Christ, hath seen the Father. Wondrous stoop of the great God. In all approach to God, then, in prayer, as in every other kindred exercise, let the eye of faith be fixed upon him who fills the middle seat upon the throne, the daysman, the mediator, the incarnate Son of God. How quieting to the mind of a praying soul is this view of God. What a mildness invests the throne of grace, and what an easy access to it presents itself when the eye of faith can behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And if the mind be embarrassed in its attempts to conceive an idea of God's spiritual nature, it can soothe itself to repose in a believing view of the glorified humanity of Jesus. God was manifest in the flesh. To this resting place, He, God Himself, invites your soul. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me.
And thus, too, he calmed the fears of his exiled servant, who, when the splendor of his glorified humanity broke upon his view, fell prostrate to earth. And when I saw him, said John in the book of Revelation, I fell at his feet as dead, and he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last, I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen, and have the keys of hell and of death. Another infirmity which often impedes the free course of prayer is the manifest lack of wisdom that may mark the petition of a child of God. For example, when Paul prayed for the removal of a thorn in the flesh, he asked that of God which betrayed a want of wisdom in his petition. Who would have suspected this in the apostle of the Gentiles? But the Lord knew best what was for the good of his dear servant, and saw that on account of the special revelations that were given Paul in his visit to glory, the disciple the discipline of the covenant was needed to keep him low in the dust. He needed the thorn in the flesh, didn't he? When his child petitioned three times for the removal of the thorn in the flesh, he for a moment overlooked because of the painful nature of the discipline its needed influence to keep him walking humbly with God, so that we see even an inspired apostle may ask those things of God which God may see fit to refuse. We may frequently expect some trial, something to keep us low before God after a season of peculiar nearness to Him or some other manifestation of His loving kindness to our souls. There is a proneness to rest in self-complacency after close communion with God, and the gentle hand of our Father is needed to shield us from ourselves. It was so with Paul. Why may it not be with us? We may be assured of this, however, that in withholding the thing we ask of God, our Father will grant us a perfect equivalent. The Lord saw fit to deny the request of Paul the Apostle, but he did grant him an equivalent, indeed more than equivalent, to that which he denied him. He gave him his all-supporting grace. My grace is sufficient for thee. Have you asked many times for the removal of some secret, heavy, painful cross? Perhaps you are still urging your request, and yet the Lord does not seem to answer you, and why? Because the request may not be in itself wise. Were he now to remove that cross, he might, in taking away that cross from you, close up a channel of mercy which you would never cease to regret. Oh, what secret and immense blessing may that painful cross be, the means of conveying into your soul. Is it health you have often petitioned for? And is the request denied you? It is wisdom that denies your request. It is love, too. Tender, unchangeable love to your soul that refuses a petition which a wise and gracious God knows, if granted, would not be for your real good and His glory. Do you not think that there is love and tenderness enough in the heart of Jesus to grant you what you desire? And ten thousand times more if He saw that it would promote your true holiness and happiness? Could he resist that request, that desire, that sigh, that tear, and that beseeching look, if infinite wisdom did not guide God in all his dealings with your soul? Oh, no. But he gives you an equivalent to the denied request. He gives you himself. Can he give you more? 
This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.